Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Brian Wood. Brian is a literary agent by day and a poet by night. If that doesn't grab your interest, consider me surprised. After working in the book industry for years, Brian pivoted to becoming a literary agent, representing authors as diverse as Stu Grimson, John Shannon, Peter Mansbridge, Scott Morrison, Ty Domi, Ellen Roseman, Steve Simmons, and Terry David Mulligan. Brian is also a poet, even if he didn't know it, and has expressed his creativity by writing and publishing three collections of his poetry. Welcome, Brian, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? First of all, thank you for having me. I'm in Guelph, uh, having the same uh, lovely but uh, sultry weather you are having, and uh, it's been a good day so far. Hopefully the same for you. Excellent. It is the same for me. I want to ask, how are you currently dividing your time these days between being a literary agent and being a poet, or is there even a clear point of uh, demarcation? Well, that's a good question. Um, 99% of the time is spent being a literary agent. The poems kind of occur to me or they don't. I try not to to say anything unless I have something to say, if that makes any sense. So if I'm out for a walk and something occurs to me, I'll come home and try to jot down as much as I can, or I'll I'll work on the weekends, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the poems I work on when I feel like it. And when I don't, I don't. When the creativity strikes you. Yeah. I, I don't want to be one of those writers who pounds out something, whether they have nothing to say, there's nothing more frustrating than grabbing a book you've been waiting for for years. And you can tell the author had a deadline or a contract or an obligation and they're just filling the pages. So my readers are busy people with a lot to do and a lot of choices. So I try to respect their time and I, only write something down if, if, if I think I have something interesting to say. Well, let's go back and get the Brian Wood story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. I was born in Ottawa in uh, 1970. I'm sure that dates me irretrievably for a lot of your listeners. Uh, I grew up in a, a suburb of Ottawa in a very religious household. Uh, my father has a doctorate in physics and worked at NRC until he retired. Uh, my mother is a court reporter, and she just retired a couple years ago. And then I left Ottawa in 1995 to move to Vancouver. Uh, I stayed in Vancouver until 2018, at which point my wife and I moved here to Guelph, and we love it here except for the weather. (laughs) Well, especially compared to out west, that would have been very different. We got pretty small in Vancouver, but Guelph is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm used to Vancouver winters. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you did your undergrad, if I'm not mistaken, University of Ottawa, and then what brought you to Toronto to pursue your master's degree in English from the University of Toronto? Of, all, of the places I applied to, the University of Toronto responded the most strongly. Uh, they said, this looks good, uh, come down and see us. I, I was nice enough, I think, to get a couple of other offers, I think from uh, Concordia and McGill, if memory serves, but I thought Toronto was the best program, and, and they were the most strenuous in going after me, so um, I started there in September of ninety. I started at uh, U of T in September of 1994. Coming out of school, you started in the 93, industry. 93, I stand corrected, sorry. <laughs> hey, that's okay. We got to have the record correct. Coming out of school, you started in the book industry working for Prospero Books, which now part of Indigo. And after leaving Indigo, you became a full-time literary agent. Brian, you got your start putting together not sports books, but cookbooks. Please tell us how you put together your very first deal for a well-known Vancouver breakfast restaurant called Sophie's. From 2001 to 2004, I worked as a local buyer for Indigo at Chapters out in BC. Like if you had done a local book and you wanted to see it in the stores, they would have said, oh, go see Brian. And I made sure 
all the local stores had it and uh, it was replenished and so on. Uh, Indigo got rid of that role mostly in 2004 and um, a publisher I knew uh, who I worked with frequently in British Columbia said, you know, you know the scene so well and we'd love to do a book about uh, Sophie's in Vancouver. You should try and set that up. I said, well, okay. <laughs> uh, so I met with Sophie who is a terrific person. Her restaurant is in Vancouver to this day and still extremely popular. And I said, you should do a cookbook. And she said, no. <laughs> and uh, we got talking. I eventually got her a deal in February of 2006. It was my very first sale. That wow. deal led to other cookbook deals in Vancouver, like uh, Memphis Blues and uh, New World Provence. So she was lovely to give me a start. And um, uh, she's an amazing person. If that book ever does come out, it'll sell a 1,000 copies a day. Uh, Sophie's is a beloved institution in Vancouver. Well, that's certainly an interesting start. And Brian, you then shifted your focus from cookbooks to nonfiction sports titles. And I would like to know how you managed to put together your first sports book with former TSN hockey insider Bob McKenzie, now known to many as the rebranded liquor mogul Bobby Margarita. Yes, in five years, we'll all be working for Bobby Margarita. Yeah, um, I think so. I was living and working in Vancouver at the time, as you know, and uh, I was looking to branch out and other things because cookbooks were doing great, but I wanted to do other things. And I I saw Bob on TSN one night, as millions of people did back then, and still do. And I thought, boy, I bet there's a great book there. And uh, luckily enough, we had a couple of mutual acquaintances at the Ottawa Senators. And my mother urged me to reach out to uh, one particular one whom I'd known for years. Uh, and this man was nice enough to kind of introduce Bob and I. And then Bob said, it's funny you should write to me just this minute, Brian, because you couldn't have picked a better time. I'm kind of hoping to tell the story of my son's journey through minor hockey in the greater Toronto area. I said, well, that sounds good. And uh, in 2009, that book came out. It's called Hockey Dad. And to this day, it still sells. I just sent him a royalty check in March. Uh, it's close to 22,000 sales and counting. It's been enormously, it was enormously popular when it came out. It's enormously popular now. And, and Bob, um, and, and please do not send him this infomercial. <laughs> he was an enormously influential person for me because, this still is, because when I talk to new clients and I mention that, I mentioned that I know Bob and he's one of my most important clients. I can hear them relax. I can hear them thinking, ah, you know, Bob, and, and they know Bob tolerates no BS and no diversion. So once I call them and mention that I, I, I've worked with Bob, I can hear them relax and it stops becoming a sales call and becomes an information call. Yeah. He's so well respected that, I mean, to this day, he's a Titan. Uh, and again, please do not send him this because it will inflate his already inflated ego. But, um, once people found that I represented him, the, the doors uh, started opening a great deal. He's uh, He was an extremely important figure for me. still is. Now, let's talk a little about process. To be a literary agent, I would have presumed, like a sports agent, you needed to be a lawyer. Did you require any kind of training or accreditation to act as a literary agent? A lot of good literary agents do have a legal background. I do not. I kind of had to teach myself through the process of contracts and making sure my clients were represented fairly and sometimes aggressively. Uh, but I do not have um, the legal training that some of my competitors do. What is the process of converting the idea for a book, turning it into a published book? How important is the proposal and how does the literary agent get involved towards getting that book, quote, sold? Sure. Well, Bob's a great example of that. He put together a, a terrific outline and a short sample chapter, and then we worked on a bio together. And I shopped that to John Wiley and Sons in Toronto, and they made us an offer that we accepted. And then over the course of about 16 months, Bob turned that into a book, and it came out September 2009. So that's how it works 
say about half the time. I will go to client A and propose an idea. They will say, sure, put together a proposal. I shot that proposal and hopefully we get a deal. Then that author writes the book and it comes out at the right time. Sometimes publishers will come to me, as you already know about the Sophie's book. That was a publisher suggesting to me, go and get me X. And to this day, that still happens. Uh, publishers will say, hey, how's it going? And, and blah, blah, blah. We're interested in doing a book with X, Y, and Z. Go and get them. And in that case, I will tell the person, this publisher is interested in working with you. Are, are you interested in doing a book? And if they say yes, I set up a meeting or a conference call or a coffee. And then it kind of takes on its own life. The publisher says, this is what we want you to do. And my client either says yes or no, and off they go. The book in that case usually comes out in a year or two, sometimes with a ghostwriter, sometimes not. These are things I do want to ask you about. You've just touched on. But on this podcast, we love to talk about the business side of things. Let's talk about the economics of books. How does $1 spent on purchasing a book at retail get broken down amongst all the various stakeholders before it trickles down to the actual author? How much time do you got? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, uh, let's say, Andrew, your book came out tomorrow, the Toronto Legends uh, book, and it was, your publisher was HarperCollins. I'm just making this up, and it was a hardcover, and, and uh, anybody could go to Indigo Guelph today and buy it for $3. The shipping company gets about 10 of that. Uh, Indigo, Chapters Close, whatever it's called now, would get another 10. Uh, the publisher takes a chunk, and then your share, especially for the first printing, would be $3 per copy. If it did well and sold more, your share would be uh, about three seventy-five per copy. And then after that, if it was a very big seller, 15000 plus, your share would be four point twenty-five per copy, and off you'd go. If there was an E-edition, Andrew, your share would be um, uh, 25% of the net. So if the E-edition sold for $15, your share would probably come to about $3 or so. The books tend to do better as the sales go better, and my clients get an advance most of the time, so... In your case, Andrew, say I got you an advance of a dollar because you're so famous and beloved throughout the industry. Yes, thank you. And um, the author's sales were $2, and we're doing these small numbers to help me with my bad math. Uh, the publisher would send me a dollar. Uh, two minus the dollar they already paid you. Well, I, that's, uh, I, I suppose I'd say that's surprising to me that if I understood you right, on a $30 book, the author would get about $3. Well, that's typical. Yeah, that's very interesting. You don't have to give us your specific financial arrangements, but how would the literary agent typically get compensated? Is it a flat fee or maybe is there a range? Is it a percentage of sales? Yeah. Uh, most agents, as far as I know, uh, most agents charge about 15%. So again, to use uh, Mr. Applebaum as the example, if I got you a hundred dollar advance, Andrew, uh, my share would be 15, one five and your share would be 85. Now, Brian, you currently have at least a half dozen books with forthcoming publishing dates as far out as 2025 by authors including Ken Reed, Scott Oak, Rod Black, Jim Lang, Steve Dangle. Have these even been written yet or were they sold on the basis of an outline or a proposal? The latter. Uh, some have not been written yet. They're being worked on as we speak. That's amazing. So they're obviously sold on the basis of the, uh, I guess, the author's name, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and the names you just mentioned, they all have amazing track records. Uh, Steve and Ken are both incredible Canadian bestsellers. Again, don't tell them I said that. Jim Lang is a machine. That guy coughs out a book every six months or so. We just met with his publisher on Friday, actually. It's funny you should mention him. The names you just mentioned are, are they're all pros that who will meet their deadlines. Uh, they always do. That's why the publisher has so much confidence in them. Well, let's talk about some of these names. Brian, you've sold so many book projects. It would be great if you could share some of the stories behind the stories. I'll give you some of your projects, and you can uh, just share anything that you may be of interest to the listener. 
Steve Simmons, A Lucky Life from 2022. Well, that is uh, partially luck. I've known Steve for a long time. Uh, he's always been very gracious to me with his time and his expertise. And he never wanted to work with an agent because, you know, he wanted complete control of his own material, which I always respected. He was always very upfront with me. He did a book with Viking Penguin, I think, in 2010 uh, that did very well. Uh, but he wanted a hand with this new collection of columns he wanted to sell. And so we worked out an agreement, and I I was able to sell it to Triumph a few years ago when it came out last fall. It did quite well. Steve's a great guy. Scott Morrison, 1972, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series, just came out uh, in the past year. How much time do you got? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> this one isn't so happy. So you, you might be editing this later, Andrew, but... Um, that one was tough and complicated. The The initial idea was to do Phil Esposito takes you through the 1972 series. And that would have been an amazing book. Uh, to this day, I, like, don't get me wrong, Scott did an incredible job in the 1972 book. And it's only because of Scott that I got to know Phil, Phil a little bit. To make a long story short, it never quite panned out. And we all decided, you know what, let's have an expert like Scott take the, the reader through this series. So that was... Um, uh, and I know you might be having Scott on soon. He might tell this differently, but um, that was a kind of a painful process that resulted in a, a great book. Uh, Scott took over the whole project by himself. I did a great job researching, and it's one of the best uh, written books I've seen. And it did incredibly well when it came out. Scott's a, a good man and a hard worker. Peter Mansbridge, off the record from 2021. That's an example we were talking about a few minutes ago of the publisher saying to me, go get me X. Uh, a few years ago, Simon Schuster said, Brian, we want to do something with Peter Mansbridge. Go have at it. I reached out to Peter. He was skeptical at first, but we talked about some ideas, and he said, well, let's give it a try. So his first book um, with Simon Schuster came out uh, a few years ago called Extraordinary Canadians. He worked with that with Mark Bolkich, and then the publisher said, this is great. Let's do a memoir, too. So we were able to do that as well. That's a, a good example of the, the second case where a publisher comes to me and says, go get me X, Y, and Z. In this case, uh, Peter did an amazing job, and those books combined have sold well over 100,000 copies. He's a hard worker. Uh, former Hockey Night in Canada personality, Al Strachan, from Hockey's Hot Stove 2020, and his book about Wayne Gretzky, 99. Gretzky, his game, his story. Well, with Al, I've been lucky enough to, uh, I got to him roughly around the same time I got to know Bob. At the time, and this will shock you, the Leafs weren't doing very well. That's <laughs> I know, you seem, seem shocked, and I thought, let's do a book about how terrible they are. So through mutual friends, I reached out to Al, and he goes, that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> and so Why the Leafs Suck came out in 2009, and it will astonish you to learn that it still sells. I just sent him a royalty oh, check a couple months ago. Uh, that's a team that keeps on giving. It, it did so well, and the publishers were often knocking on Al's door for another book, and he eventually said, why not a Gretzky memoir? And McClellan Stewart said, well, that sounds great. And they were right. That book still sells to this day. It's, it's, I think it's arguably Al's best. Then he retired, as you know. Uh, and Simon Schuster asked him to come out of retirement for a hockey hot stove book. And he did. He did an amazing job, too, that came out at, I think, Christmas of 2020. Uh, Al's a, a terrific writer. Well, when you talk about beloved Toronto Maple Leafs, Ty Domi, shift work from 2015, did this book come with the crayons, or did you have to provide your own? I didn't hear that question. <laughs> and, and, I, and Brian, I'm clearly an internet tough guy, because you can be, rest assured, I would not be saying that uh, to tie right to his face. That's another example of, of, of Simon Schuster coming to me and saying, let's do a Ty Domi book. And I was able to reach out through Jim Lang. That's kind of how Jim and I met. And Jim set up a coffee uh, with 
Ty's agent uh, in the fall of 2013, if memory serves. That deal was not easy to get done, but it was. We got it done by Christmas of 2013, and it came out in um, the fall of 2015. That book is at 53,000 sales and counting. Another hockey star who perhaps you would be surprised not only was a former NHLer, but a lawyer, Stu, the Grim Reaper Grimson, who wrote The Grim Reaper in 2019. Again, I had known Stu for years. Uh, we had kind of traded emails back and forth when he was still working for the Predators as an analyst. And he was always, he always very politely said, now is not the right time, and I'm not sure I want to do this. And he was always very polite, and so our relations were thoroughly cordial. Uh, but uh, a few years ago, I guess in 2018, he reached out and said, you know, let's, let's talk, Brian. And uh, he put together a great proposal with Kevin Allen. I set up some meetings for him in Toronto with uh, ECW Press and HarperCollins and Penguin. Penguin made an amazing offer. Uh, we accepted, and that came out in the fall of 2019. It's done very well. Stu is, as you know, a remarkable person. Uh, it was a pleasure to work on that one. Well, when you talk about remarkable people, former guest on this podcast, Justin Davis, who wrote Conflicted Scars in the past year, and I got the sense it wasn't something he intended to do, and suddenly it became a book. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think it kind of became a book in spite of himself. Um, I think he was on your show a couple weeks ago when he mentioned that it began as just notes for his children, not to really share with anybody. But I guess he kept working on it and working on it. His friend said, this has got to get out there. And he reached out to me through my brother. Uh, my brother at the time ran my website. My brother said, you've got to have a look at this stuff. It's compelling. And he was right. Uh, that one wasn't easy to sell. Just because in hockey, you know, people always gravitate to the big names. But we were able to get a deal with ECW Press. It came out last fall, as you know, and uh, has sold very well. But that that has almost been secondary. He may have mentioned this during his interview with you, but uh, it's been very rewarding to work on that book. When he was on a television show earlier this spring, he got a note the next day from a complete stranger out of the blue on Facebook saying, I am in tears watching you on television right now. Just ordered this for myself and my son. He needs to read this. He is living what you're describing this. And hockey's a great game, and the, and the CHL is great, the NHL is great, but Justin's book, I think, has been a real tonic for people for whom hockey has spit out. Uh, hockey tends to protect the big names like Gretzky and Joe Thornton and Lemieux and so on, but it, hockey is not so good at protecting the, the average player, for lack of a better word, the, the guy in the fourth line. And we're starting to find out from Justin and others what the consequences of that behavior can be. Uh, hazing stories, uh, guys committing suicide, uh, hazing rituals. Now, obviously, that doesn't describe the entire CHL, but enough of it that many people in this country can relate to. And I'm astonished at how hard Justin worked to get that book out and how hard he's worked to promote it. And he deserves uh, every bit of the success. Um, he also happens to be a very nice guy. Well, I, I didn't get the sense, as you said, Brian, he found it very rewarding in the end. So it was good that he put it together. The complete opposite, perhaps, is John Shannon, who swore he would never write a book. The former Hockey Night in Canada broadcasting icon did put out a book, Evolve or Die, just this last year. Oh, yeah, he was not joking when he said that. Well, the first times I met John, he turned me down flat. He was polite about it, but it was a, a no with a capital N. Um, again, Simon Schuster said, set up lunch. And John reluctantly came along. He had a good time at lunch. And, uh, in typical John Shannon fashion, what I brought to him, you know, some ideas he goes, Brian, you can stop right there. I'm not signing a contract with you, but you're my agent and I'm not going to sign with anybody else. You have my word. And you can tell Simon Schuster uh, to improve their offer, but 
they don't have to because I'm not signing with anybody but them. That's a very John Shannon negotiation. I told Simon Schuster, we're on board, and they said, great, here's a number. We agreed on it, and John, uh, as you mentioned on your show, um, had a pandemic to work on, so it took him a while, but he, he did a terrific job in that book. It's, it's full of great stories. Uh, but like you, I was I was surprised he did it because his first for his refusals were quite emphatic at first. But I'm very happy for him. Very hard worker. Is it true only in Canada could you put together a book by a curler, Colleen Jones, throwing rocks at houses from 2015? Yeah, Colleen is great. I think she just nicely retired from CBC Halifax actually after an amazing career. Harry Lefko, the writer of that book, approached me with that one. Excuse me. He said, this is a story that needs to be told. Uh, and uh, so we set up a couple of calls with Colleen, and I, I liked her immediately. Everybody does. Uh, Colleen and Perry worked hard on that book. It wasn't easy to do, but they eventually got it out. And uh, it's, a, it's a testament to how hard they both worked that that book came out on time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that came out with Penguin in 2015. All the authors we've talked about, with the exception of Peter Mansbridge, were sports-related. So I want to finish by asking you about two non-sports authors. Ellen Roseman, Fight Back from 2013, and Terry David Mulligan, TDM from 2011. Well, with Terry, we're talking about my old BC roots. You know, obviously, as a, I lived in BC for so long that, uh, like everybody there, I had seen his radio shows. And m- many people have seen him on TV and movies without realizing it. He's been in movies forever, ever since, I think, Silence of the Lamps. Uh, he's been in a lot of television shows, a lot of movies. And uh, and obviously, I, I'm i old enough, I, uh, very, I'm, I'm ancient enough to remember him on much music. Uh, so I approached him with a book idea, and he teamed up with a great writer named Glenn Schaefer at the province, and that came out from here to Chelsea, what, 13 years ago. Time flies. Uh, very nice guy. Ella Roseman, I kind of met through the publisher. John, she had worked with John Wiley in the past, and I, they were eager to, to work with her again, so I approached Ellen, and she was nice enough to hear me out. Yeah, she put a, that's a formidable collection of uh, financial advice. Uh, Ellen's a real advocate for the consumer, and that comes across in her writing. Yeah, she still is today, of course. Brian, you don't have to reveal specific names unless you want to. What is the prevalence of ghostwriters, or asked a different way, do memoirs and autobiographies actually get written by the subjects themselves? It depends on the person. A lot of the most of the books I've I've done have been written by the author. Many have had help, like uh, we talked about extraordinary Canadians. Uh, a, a good chunk of that was written by Mark Bolguch, but Peter did the memoir on his own. Uh, Bob McKenzie uh, insisted on doing his own books, and he always has. He's a terrific writer. Ty Domi wanted help, and Jim Lang was an extremely able co-writer for him. That's one of Jim's specialties. Jim has helped Ty Domi, Wendell Clark, and Brian Burrard, among others, get their story out. Uh, Ken Reed has helped Dennis Marouk do his story. Dan Murphy did an amazing job ghosting for Sean Pronger. Dan and Sean write so alike that I couldn't tell who sent me what. (laughs) In some ways, Dan is better at imitating Sean Pronger than Sean is. So, yeah, it depends on the project. Some people are comfortable writing on their own with their voice and, and, uh, and their temp- their experiment. Others like a, a seasoned professional on, on board to help. I can understand the concept of using a ghostwriter to help you out when you're writing an autobiography or a memoir. But I understand there's also ghostwriters for fiction. This would kind of shock me. Should it shock me? No. If you've ever seen Barton Fink, it shouldn't shock you. <laughs> I imagine, especially towards the end of their careers, you know, and, and I, I'm i not knocking the success, but we all know at some level, Tom Clancy, James Patterson, Lee Child, all these big names, publish a book every four four minutes, 
we know there's ghost riders involved. I can't prove that, but <laughs> and maybe I'm wrong. But I wouldn't doubt with um, with the big name authors, especially the ones who publish frequently, that they have some help in the background. What is the role today of audiobooks? And is it a given that the author will do the actual reading themselves? In nonfiction, audio is surprisingly quiet, or at least it is for my authors. Other agents you might have on or other authors might beg to differ. But my my clients, they're lucky if 4 to 5% of their sales are audio. And the second part of your question is, most of the time the publisher will hire my client to do the reading. Other times they hire an, an actor. You, Brian, have always worked in nonfiction and do not take golf books. What do you have <laughs> against golf books? There is a huge demographic out there that loves golf and loves to spend money on golf. Why no golf books? Well, that's kind of a private joke on my website. Uh, when I first started, I got a couple of terrible proposals on golf books that were never going to go anywhere. So that's kind of why that there is there is a warning. If Tiger Woods called me and insisted I be his agent, I would reluctantly hear him out. <laughs> you'd, you'd hear him out. That's good. Yeah, just to be fair. Just to be fair. Your website says you no longer accept submissions. Uh, is that because... 99% of what you actually get is uh, usually junk, or, or what is the process of getting submissions, and what's been your experience? Your analysis is uh, sadly correct. Uh, well, when my website was open, my brother kind of had a look at the submissions, and they often spelled his name wrong, or they spelled my name wrong, or they spelled their own name wrong. Uh, there was gramma grammatical or typos in the subject line. They got the date wrong. Uh, they're wrong about their own subject. Sometimes the emails were full of threats. One guy threatened me personally. Uh, sometimes they would make fun of my brother for opening their submission. Quality of the work was abysmal most of the time. For every Justin Davis who puts in the work, there are a million people who just blanket submission everybody. And I, I think they know they're going to get turned down to, but they just tell themselves they're doing something. So I reluctantly had to close down that page. That just what, what we're being sent was just not even worth looking at, sadly. Not a good way to get your uh, submission looked at. I've, I've talked to other agents about this. They go through the same thing. Like one of my best competitors, and he's a formidable agent, formidable. We're all kind of in second place next to him. His website says quite clearly, like in bold letters, do not send poetry. Hmm. And he gets like 10 poetry submissions a week. <laughs> and I understand, like he's a he's a famous agent and he's good at what he does. So I understand people want part of that success and he's very good at his job. But he can't be any more clear. And he still gets 10, 15 submissions a week that he won't even look at. Anyway, you're probably sorry you asked. <laughs> oh no, I can see your your frustration. I can understand why you've turned off that feature on your on your website. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. We've got Terry O'Reilly, Evan Solomon, Ellen Roseman, Toronto Life's Malcolm Johnson, and broadcasting legend Ted Wallishan. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's transition to your poetry, Brian. You have three poetry collections, Winter Walk from 2013, Weekend Getaway at Generic Hotel from 2017, and your most recent collection, Zen in Beverly Hills, from just past year. Why and how did you get your first collection published, Winter Walk in 2013? Uh, luck and hard work. Uh, I had started putting together a collection a couple years before, and uh, my wife encouraged me to start sending, uh, sending them out. I got a few responses, none of them very encouraging, most of them pretty condescending, actually, especially from Canadian publishers. So she said, let's try the States. And at the time, she knew someone who was starting up his own um, 
small press in Pennsylvania called Sakura Press. And I just said, why not try? He can always say no. So I emailed him. He said, well, Brian, I will have a look, but just so you know, 95% of what I get sent is pure crap. <laughs> so he felt my pain, obviously. And, and that's, I know you're probably regretting you asked, but that's, if your listeners are curious, if they, if they want to show their work to people, follow the, the, the website rules that will ensure you'll get lo- looked at at least. Anyway, to get back to your question. He warned me the answer would probably be no, but I was welcome, welcome to send him five sample poems. I did. He liked them. Uh, we talked a bit, and uh, with a bit of negotiation, and thanks uh, to my wife and to the publisher, the, the first collection came out in 2013. I have to ask, can poetry pay the bills? Or for you, is it more a labor of love that complements your day job, so to speak? Oh, the latter. <laughs> uh, the most popular like the most famous poets you can think of in your head right now is probably lucky to sell 300 copies a year. It's strictly, a, it's strictly, a, yeah, it's something I do on the weekends. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe you'll have 10 poets on next year who are all fabulously wealthy. Uh, but this one, uh, I, I do it, uh, I do it in my spare time. Ryan, you describe your poems as atavistic. I have absolutely no idea what that means. Atavistic is a, is a fancy term for throwback. Okay. I try to remind people of poems that I love. So uh, if I'm doing my job, I hope I remind people of Yeats or Auden or Robert Frost or, you know, Shakespeare or Marvel. I'm not saying I'm anywhere near as good as the people I just mentioned. They're in their own separate universe. But I'm hoping when people read them, by the, the form and terms I use remind them of the poems they grew up reading in school or on their own. So I try to write uh, in iambic pentameter. And I try to make sure the poems rhyme. Not all the time. Like, I'm not saying I succeed. I'm just trying to remind people of, of the, some of the famous poems they read uh, growing up or in school. Writing classical poetry in a postmodern world. Would that be an apt description? Uh, if I'm any good, yes. The, that was very kind of uh, TVO to say that. And I probably owe them a thank you card. I, I, like I said, I know I'm repeating myself here. You can take this out. But I do try to remind people of the poems they grew up reading in school. I, I think... People like Robert Frost or Philip Larkin are immensely talented, and those are models I shoot for, even if I get nowhere near their level. You expect your readers to kind of know their way around a library. You prefer an audience that likes poems that show, not tell. Brian, how do you make your poems more accessible then to average Joes like me? I think that's a balance. I, like, I think uh, great art, wherever it comes from, confronts and challenges the reader or the viewer, or the listener. When the Magic Flute came out, there were riots at the premiere. When Le Sacre de Pléton came out, and I think Paris in 1918, there were riots at that too. A lot of art we love now, like Picasso and Manet and uh, uh, Rubens and Rembrandt, was very controversial and uh, in in, uh, in its day. I think great art challenges people. I Even very current television shows, like The Simpsons or uh, 30 Rock, uh, family Guy, they all have very highfalutin stuff in the background if people are paying attention. There's a Simpsons episode that's entirely based on a platonic dialogue. And, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which I think just stopped taping a couple years ago, they assume their viewer knows pretty much the King James Bible by heart. They quote from it a lot. Um, so this is probably a long-winded answer, is that I think the general public is a, is a lot more aware than it's given credit for. It's often pandered to and condescended to. And I think there's a big audience out there for pe- people who like to be challenged by what they're reading or watching. I find 
some of the best written television. It's incredibly elusive and packed and powerful in what it's doing. The Simpsons, especially in their heyday, could have an incredibly dense 22 minutes of illusion after illusion after illusion. And to people paying attention, it was a very rich experience. As I say, the Simpsons have an entire episode based on a, a platonic dialogue. And in that episode, they, they quote, um, who's that great poet? A Neruda. And you're expected to know the quotation. Uh, so I, I think art, when done well, can both entertain the audience and challenge it too. Well, clearly there's layers and that having those layers for the reader to investigate. I think one way that you've increased reader access was by the inclusion in your third collection of a notes section at the end, Zen and Beverly Hills. I did find the notes helpful. As to your intentions, what prompted you to include these notes in this third collection, but you hadn't done so in your first collections? A bunch of people had suggested it. And I guess the the deciding argument for me was, I don't know, Andrew, if you had time to read the one about the uh, the missionary who went to the North Sentinel Island. And um, CNN had a story on him a couple of years ago. He was killed by the, the uh, residents there. Anyway, I sent a draft of the poem to a friend of mine out in Vancouver. And she said, boy, Brian, this is great. I, I really like this. But the second half doesn't make any sense at all. I said, well, okay, that, that makes sense, actually. And I explained to her that the, the missionary I described in the poem did exist, but I made up the old preacher in the second half of the poem. She goes, oh, okay, now I understand. Don't change the word. <laughs> so ever since that conversation, I was thinking some of these poems could maybe use a little background information for people who are interested. And people who are interested, the notes are way at the back, so you don't have to read them. But I figured some of them could require a little, um, a little backstory couldn't hurt. Like I think for the one about... The barista, she and her boyfriend go to a <laughs> a very Hollywood, very California cemetery on their vacation. And in the note I explained there at Hollywood Forever uh, in, in Los Angeles. And I think that helps I think that helps a lot of readers mentally picture where the poem is set. So I, it was just an attempt to kind of, if people are interested, and some people aren't, just to kind of give a background of some of the stories. I also thought, Brian, you increased access by including some well-known personalities to read your poems aloud. You've had your poems read by Peter Mansbridge, Bob McKenzie, James Duffy. I think this is a great move. How did you get them involved, and how interested were they in showing their poetry reading skills? First part of your answer, a question I did it by begging. <laughs> and B, they're, they're tremendously talented readers. Um, in each case, I, I, asked, uh, I asked them if they would mind doing a, a reading of one poem. And they're all too nice. So they all said yes. And they did an amazing job. I know I'm shilling here, but uh, I don't care. You can edit it out. The Sheila Rogers recording is just gorgeous. That woman, uh, not that one, right out of the park. Uh, her love of language is evident in every line. Now, Peter did a fantastic job with the one about the midwinter. There's a reason his voice has been famous for 50 years, longer probably. Bob did an incredible job with Hockey Fights Cancer. And I asked James to do the one about the detective up in Whitehorse because James's father was an RCMP officer as well. Uh, all, all four of those people, and I know I'm shilling here, you can take it out. I thought they did superlative jobs. Uh, their recordings are amazing. Henry did one too, and we'll get that up on the site as soon as we can. Oh, I thought they were great too. Again, I thought it helped the access to, to the average reader or someone who may not have thought they would enjoy poetry. Zen in Beverly Hills, the third collection, what's the feedback you've gotten, Brian, and how do you primarily get your feedback these days from readers? I've been lucky. A lot of people reach out through Facebook, or they'll put a review on Amazon, or they'll reach out through email. Uh, I've been very, very lucky um, in in the response. Uh, most people like them, and if they don't, they're too polite to say so. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
yeah, no, I've been very fortunate. The Amazon reviews are uh, very flattering. So it's nice to know that uh, I do work hard on them and it's nice to know people like them. And I, I, try, I know people are busy and they've got lots to do. So I try to make sure the poems are worth their time. Because of your whole background, I do want to close with some questions about the publishing industry. Book retailing today, do people still go to bookstores or is it just too simple to order from Amazon? Amazon is certainly a big part. And during the pandemic, they played a crucial role in keeping the industry alive. They shipped out a lot of books during the pandemic. I think now that these frictions are easing, people are heading back to the bookstores and that's a good thing. I think uh, hopefully the bookstore will always be the um the primary place for your reading you know support to sort your support your local store or support indigo you know support canadian retailers i think we'd all agree about that and i think it's important to support bookstores having said that there are some great online retailers like indigo and amazon and uh every once in a while my friends say you know you know how can i support you i'd say as long as people are purchasing their their books rather than stealing them we're happy <laughs> we can't afford what happened to the music industry <laughs> uh yeah, but well, i find in, in canada and the u.s People are very supportive of, of books. Um, some of my titles, as you know, are coming up to being 13, 14 years old, and I'm still sending my clients royalty checks. People are going out there and buying them. Uh, people's reading appetites are voracious, and it's nice to see. Physical books versus electronic books. How are people consuming their books these days? In my case, in nonfiction, and other agents and other people might give you a different answer, Andrew. In my case, 95% hard copies. I think people like that in nonfiction. I think they like having the actual book in their hands. Whereas I think novels are a little more easily consumed on the airplane or on the way into work or whatever. But in my niche, for lack of a better word, 95% of the time people want a physical copy in their hands. The other 5% are people who buy the e-edition or the audio. My assumption would be people buy books based on the New York Times or the Globe and Mail bestsellers list. Is that the way people actually buy books? And is that the best way to become a bestseller? Oh, sure. Uh, nothing seemed like success. <laughs> yeah. But it comes from all kinds of sources. Word of mouth, reviews they see online, ads they might see whether when they're uh, online, uh, recommendations from friends, the local library. Like my brother, for instance, uh, every few weeks the library loads up his trolley and he goes and reads them and brings back a fresh batch. One of my friends in Vancouver, she makes her living writing up, making up reading lists for people and People reading the books, and then they bring them back, and she writes a pretty list for them. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to get the word out. Publishing today. Is self-publishing a viable option, or do you still require a publishing house to get your work out? That would take a while to answer properly, so I'll give you the Coles Notes version, for lack of a better And Self-publishing has its its area. I would advise people who go that way to have a lawyer look over their contract with whoever they choose to publish it, and to keep their eyes wide open. For every J.K. Rowling or uh, uh, James Redfield, the media, when they cover self-publishing, they only cover that one person in Australia who now has 14 mansions, sells 15 million books a day, and now lives on the move. You know, they do not cover the 15 million people who have a thousand books in their basement mm -hmm. and another thousand books in their living room. So, uh, if people have had no luck with traditional publishing, and that happens, self-publishing is a route. But like I said, I would encourage people to have a lawyer look over their contract with whoever they choose to go with and to keep their eyes open. I got one thing as a cranky consumer that you'll be able to educate me on. <laughs> and I apologize up front. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like a dumb, dumb asking this, but I don't understand about ebooks. When I go to the library for an ebook, why do I have to be on a waiting list 
until it's, quote, available, even though it's electronic. And further, why does my book loan period on an ebook expire even though I don't have to return that physical book? That's an excellent question. I'll refer you to the Booksellers, quite, uh, Booksellers Association of Canada. Maybe they'll have a good question for you. The, the, short answer, the short answer is that publishers and libraries have always had a, a somewhat contentious relationship, and ebooks have made it worse uh, because it's so easy for publishers to buy uh, book libraries to just buy the one copy. So, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to hint at an answer there rather than answer you explicitly. And I urge you to take that up with your member of Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But thank you for going to the library and supporting publishing. I, I appreciate that. Well, it's always been a frustration when you want something. You find out there's 62 people ahead of you. And I said, why can't we all have it? Brian, what are you working on next? I'm working with Ivanka Osmak right now on a book about uh, a, a woman's beer league hockey group she belongs to. Uh, we just met with the publisher a couple weeks ago. I met with Sandy Ronaldo just before Christmas. Uh, she is thinking of doing a memoir in the nearest future. She just celebrated 50 years of CTV, if you can believe that. Uh, Jim Lang and I might be working on something very shortly, as you already know. And I'm doing very well here. I've mentioned three things. Normally when people ask me that, I blank. <laughs> I can never think of anything. Those are three that I have, I'm working on at the moment. Well, I think it's great. You clearly got your uh, inbox full despite the fact that you are no longer accepting submissions, if a listener has written a book or has a book proposal, what is your best advice as what they should do next? That's a good question. If they've written a novel, they should go to the library or the local bookstore, whichever they prefer, and find 10 recently published similar novels. I'm not saying identical. Every writer is different, but identical. So so let's call your, your listener uh, Jane Smith, and she's written a, a book of science fiction. Uh, Jane should go to the local Indigo, grab 10 recently published science fiction novels, and find out who their agents are. And if their agents are accepting submissions, follow those guidelines to the letter. And I'll repeat that, to the letter. Because these agents probably receive a thousand submissions a day, maybe more. And I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to put anyone down, but, uh, so that's what the, the novelist should do in this case. In nonfiction, nonfiction is usually sold um, based on an outline and sample chapter, but that the nonfiction person, we'll call him John Smith, should do the same. So let's say, let's say they've written a book on curling. They should go to the library or the bookstore and find 10 recent curling books, find out the name of the agent who sold them, and if that agent is accepting submissions, follow those guidelines to the letter. Look for people who have done work in your notes. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense. And good advice. So... As we close up, Brian, where can we best follow you and know not only what you've done in the past, but what you're working on in the future? And where can listeners purchase any of your three collections of poetry? Uh, the collections of poetry are all available on Amazon.ca and Amazon.com. And that's wonderful when people support it that way. I'm also, I'm also very grateful, as I said, to people like you who go and buy my clients' books. Those are all available at Chapters, Indigo, Coles, your local bookstore. As for me, uh, I'm not a big Twitter follower. I'm on there. If people want to follow me, that'd be great. Uh, be very flattering. I am on Facebook, but I'm considering getting off because Facebook is so weird and so preachy, as you know. And I do have a website, uh, brianjwood.com, if people want to check out recent sales. And uh, the, the that website is actually creation of my wife's. I don't even have the password. Uh, <laughs> and she usually does a blog every two years or so, whether she feels like it or not. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Brian, it was great getting to know you and hearing all about your duality between being a literary agent and a poet and uh, wishing you continued success with all your projects going forward. Well, thanks for coming on, Andrew. This was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. 
And to the listeners, on behalf of Brian Wood, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.